This chapter that we're going to head into today is Revelation 14, and it carries on the themes from last week. One of the big themes from last week was that when followers of Jesus, when we find ourselves living under beastly empires, we are called to perseverance and to love, knowing that Jesus has won the victory, looking ahead to him knowing we can trust in him. And so last week we explored chapter 13, uh, this imagery of these beasts that are empowered by the dragon, by God's enemies. And the imagery of Daniel 7, combined with John's own advice for interpreting that passage and those images, told us these are not just some sort of of far-off, end-of-the-world, doomsday powers but they were already present in John's day, namely embodied in Nero, who was the leader of the Roman Empire. Uh, He was the Roman emperor, and many of the emperors were kind of followed suit. Uh, they, They led in the persecution of God's people. And in John's day, the Roman imperial cult in Asia fostered worship to the militant domineering empire. There was this sense in the culture that you... You almost worship this the power of the state that you're under. And it elevated the emperor as almost this divine savior. He was the lawgiver. And so we see parallels, very much the same of what, what John describes between the beasts and the dragon and the sense of giving worship to the beast who, who again, is empowered by the dragon in the same way we there would be local authorities and local powers, much like the second beast, those involved with trade and whatnot, that would then point people to almost, not almost, but actually worshiping the imperial cult and worshiping the emperor himself. And of course, all of that is is full of idolatry. And that's why John can describe it as, as really the dragon being behind all of that. My point is what John is describing here is not just a future sort of terrible apocalyptic event. It made sense to his readers at the time. But neither is it solely in the past. The vision has implications for every generation of believers. And I want you to think about it this way. What's happening here is the manipulating of people, essentially to a thoughtless religious allegiance to an idolatrous state. And that really is an ageless phenomenon. You can see that in almost any generation in various parts of the world. And there's much that could be talked about in that, the whole idea of, of uh, social uh, cultures and how does the church respond and the culture it's in. There's, there's huge implications there, but perhaps the most personal implication out of all of that is who will you serve, depending on what generation you live in and what time you live in and what country you live in, that the, the world around you will look differently. The culture you're embedded in will look differently. But at the end of the day, there's a question of who will you serve? Or put in Revelation terms, maybe what mark will you take? Will you turn towards this thoughtless uh, allegiance to the state and almost a, a, a cultish sense of allegiance? Or we might say to the beast and its false worship, or do we seek the seal of God? on his faithful believers. And again, those seals need not be understood primarily as physical features, just as in Deuteronomy, the Shema being on the forehead and on the hand. Some took that literally and did that as a 
as a reminder, but not everyone did. It was meant to be a picture of putting God first in our minds and on our hands, in our work. And so more importantly, they symbolize our heart's allegiance. Either our allegiance is towards evil and idolatry, towards the beast and the dragon, you might say, or towards God and to the Lamb and to faithful allegiance to Jesus and his righteousness. You might, we actually haven't talked about it in a bit, but God actually was the first one to seal some people in Revelation. He seals his believers on their foreheads back in Revelation 7. And so already that's been established first, and then we get this sort of false sealing um, later on with the beasts. And so now we're going to return to that in this chapter. So now in chapter 14, in contrast to chapter 13, where we saw the false godless powers of the dragon and the beast, here in chapter 14 stands Jesus the true king, the lamb who was slain and rose again, and he is alive and surrounded by the redeemed in celebration and in worship. And really, this chapter is an encouragement. If I could say one thing about this chapter, it's meant to be an encouragement to believers who are living under beastly empires at any point in history to remember that Jesus reigns, that he is alive, that he's holding on to us, I'm holding on to you, as we sang this morning. Uh, he has got us and he is alive, regardless of how much the world around us might seem to rage. And so the passage has three sections. The first five verses describe the lamb and the worshiping people. Verses 6 to 13, the second section, is a series of announcements from God to encourage Christians in hardship. And then the last section, verses 14 to 20, describe two harvests that will come at the end of history. And so with that in mind, I just invite you to prepare your hearts, and I'm going to read chapter 14 for us. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these that have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they're blameless. So that's the first section regarding the lamb and the people. Now the second one is the message of the three angels. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's the first announcement. Another angel, the second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That's the third message. And then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
They have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then John says, what are we to make of all those announcements? Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's who the saints are. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And now we get to the third section regarding these harvests. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. and Blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, as we head into this chapter, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, open our hearts to receive from you this morning. Lord, encourage each one as they're watching from home. Bless them as they go about their day. Lord, may we be encouraged to live faithfully for you, regardless of the time we live in and the issues we face in our world and in our lives, that we would continue to endure with hope uh, and with your love uh, as we seek to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First... John 14, or Revelation 14, 1 to 5. John looks, and on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him the 144,000. It starts off where John sees Jesus, the conquering Lamb, and he's standing in glory on God's holy hill in heaven. He's accompanied with his army who are singing and worshiping. And you'll notice God's people are sealed, not with the mark of the beast, but with the seal of God on their foreheads, kind of like the Old Testament Shema. And the seal of God, we read, is the name of, uh, of the Lamb and of his Father, verse 1. It's like a mark of possession or protection uh, by God. And if you remember back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, it talks about, He who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God. So this idea of those who live faithfully for Jesus, even to the point of martyrdom, are, are marked by God as his own and, and sort of brought in to be part of the celebrating people even after death. So the singers are celebrating the Lamb's victory over sin. And we actually read some of that in Revelation 15, verse 3. In the next chapter, they sing, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. And here in verse 3, uh, of chapter 14, we're taught that they're singing a new song, and it's learned only by the 144,000, those who have been redeemed from the earth. And it's not unlike Psalm 107, verse 2 and 3, where it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, 
and gathered out of the lands from the east, from the west, from the north and the south. See, lots of parallels and lots of echoes throughout all of Scripture. Remember back when we were introduced to the 144,000, John heard that number. It's the number of a military census. They're being described as the army of the Lamb, and that number's reminiscent of Israel's military censuses as well. Then he turns to see them, and he sees millions of people from all over the world. It's sort of this vast army of all those who have chosen Jesus as their Lord. And so the 144,000 are... Uh, I, I would argue, are representatives of all the redeemed in Christ. And now notice this key phrase in verse 4. It says, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's sort of what's defining about these people. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And Jesus' call throughout the Gospels to follow him is perhaps one of his most persistent commands, right? We actually say uh, a person is a follower of Jesus when we talk about them as a Christian. That's sort of, you can sort of say, uh, this person's a follower of Jesus. And there's like, well, what more needs to be said, right? That means sort of everything. Uh, they believe in him. They've repented. They've given their lives to God. In John 12, Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. And I think of Peter's restoration in John 21. Jesus eventually calls Peter to follow him once again. And so it's with that background in mind, we get to Revelation 14. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And here we know the lamb has won the victory over the dragon and the beasts through his sacrificial death. And now these people are putting, it's like they're putting that victory into practice by willingly following him, even if that means to their own death. And we're reminded of Jesus' words where he says, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. And sometimes we think of it's my cross to bear. We talk about taking up the cross as this is this burden in my life that I have to carry. There's some truth to that. Um, but I think more significantly, often that means being willing to die. There's a call to living for Jesus and knowing we live in a world that does not always uh, love or appreciate or accept our, our commitment to Jesus. And so here... We find those who have given their lives and are now redeemed and present with God. And what's interesting, again, is we see a movement very similar to what's happening in actually in Psalm 2. In Revelation 12 and 13, we've been talking about the dragon and the beast. And then here in Revelation 14, we see Jesus. And Psalm 2 actually has the same sort of pattern. It starts with the nations raging, um, just like the beast in Revelation 13. And then it says, but... But God has set his king, his son, upon my holy hill in Zion. That's how Psalm 2 goes. And what did we see here in Revelation 14? Well, how does it start? I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. <laughs> so here's the king. It's basically, Revela uh, John is saying in Revelation, here's, here's Psalm 2 being lived out. And how it started with the nations raging and then seeing that God has established his king in the same way we can look here in Revelation and see, here's the beasts, here's the dragon raging, but God has established his king on his holy hill. The lamb is standing on Mount Zion, and we can trust and put our hope in the true king whom God has established. Verses 4 to 5 has some interesting uh, notes here. It describes the redeemed saints as spiritually pure, and that's symbolized by a sexual abstinence. Now, remember, this is 
army imagery. The 144,000 is, again, like a military census. And Israel would abstain before going to war. And a good example of this, if you remember, is in the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, right? So Uriah comes, David summons Uriah home from the, from the front line and hopes that he'll sleep with Bathsheba because he's gotten her pregnant. And Uriah refuses to do so because they're in the middle of this war, right? And so sexual purity was sort of a way of showing your consecration to God while you were in, in this wartime. And so in the same way, it's describing the 144,000 as being sort of celibate as they're at war. That means it, all of it points to them essentially being pure, being spiritually pure. And while the 144,000 are portrayed as celibate males, um, it signifies both male and female, right, who dying in their faith are gathered as the first fruits for God, verse 4. Um, foreshadowing the great harvest to come. Of course, again, the male imagery because of the army imagery. would have been males in the army. So, essentially what you have is Jesus is the king. He's surrounded by those who have lived faithfully for him and who have been martyred for their faith. Um, and it's like they're this holy army, but they, they conquer not by actually taking up the sword and fighting. They conquer by loving their enemies and giving their lives for them in the same way Jesus conquered it that way. And if you remember back when we were doing the seven letters to the churches, almost the end of almost every letter, I think it might be every letter, Jesus says, to those that conquer, I will give the crown of life, or I will, uh, you know, whatever, give them a new name, or whatever it might be. But to those who conquer, right? There's this sense of army or militant imagery of the church, which is set in contrast to the dominating, arrogant, militant imagery of the empire. And so as the church we conquer not by taking up the sword, but by laying down our lives in love for our enemies. Um, could you make a point about pacifism and just war out of all that? Sure. You could, you could go totally off in that direction and talk about that. And that's not so much the point. I think there's definitely cases where um, people are called to take up arms to, to fight the greater evil in society. Is that a wonderful thing to have to do? No. But sometimes we're called to it. The point being, though, we follow Jesus even as he did, laying down our lives um, and not fighting our enemies when they come to attack us because of our faith. We seek to love them well. So that's this first section. That Even as the nations are raging, as the dragon and the beasts are raging, as evils rage, we know that Jesus is the true and faithful king. God has established him. He is alive and well. He's surrounded by all of those who had given their lives to follow him. They're together in the New Jerusalem. Well, they're on Mount Zion, and they're proclaiming a song of victory to the nations. And if you're part of the seven churches in Asia, I think you'd be encouraged, too, that while the nations are kind of raging around you, remembering, wow, the true king is actually enthroned. He's trustworthy. He'll see us through. And my friends and family who have died for their faith are with him right now, singing the song of the Lamb. And I'm going to be okay. He's going to see me through. And that's encouraging no matter what generation you're in. To know God's got us and he will see us through. And the loved ones that we have in Christ who have gone before us are with him even now. That great cloud of witnesses. I hope you're encouraged by that this morning. Now the second part is that uh, 
now knowing that that he's won missed my spot here because the lamb has won there's this call to carry on following him faithfully even as the nations rage and so as we head into part two we hear the victory song of the saints and these three announcements that describe god's victory the first announcement this is verse six seven is the message of the eternal gospel it's this message that's proclaimed it says to every tribe and tongue and nation fear god and give him glory this is verse seven the hour of his judgment has come worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water there's a sense of the long-awaited reign of god and his christ is about to be consummated right the exile's over at long last and yahweh has come god is going to sort this out and so turn to him turn to him it's the message of the eternal gospel for every person turn to jesus and then the second message is about babylon and like rome babylon is often a picture in scripture of sort of the epicenter of evil and injustice and idolatry of human evil like this is what we make we make babel we make the tower to our own idolatry and hubris babylon's often the picture of of uh, israel's enemies and so what's being said here is that babylon is fallen right there'll come a day the end of history when all these evil societies will actually finally meet their end and that means God's going to deal with those who have perpetuated the injustice of Babylon. And that's the third message. All those who worship the beast will know God's wrath and will experience his torment. And that might be a little scary, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So three announcements that, that bring further hope. Again, Jesus reigns. He, the saints are with him. The lamb is enthroned. This is the eternal gospel. So follow him. Turn to him. The second message, Babylon will fall. Don't put your faith there. Don't make your life about idolatry and evil. Turn to God. Follow him. Babylon's going down. And the third one, those who turn against God will eventually know his just and holy anger. And so, turn from that and repent. Follow Jesus. This is the call. This is like the gospel message. Turn away and follow Jesus jesus and now the final section of the the two harvests takes up that idea of god dealing with those who are persistent in their sin and choose god's judgment and it describes what will happen at the end of history these two harvests and and this is very similar to parts in matthew i think it is where jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats separating those who follow god and those who don't you see it in various places the grain harvest seems to be about jesus gathering his followers to himself and the grape harvest by contrast envisions sort of the bloody destruction of the wicked and it's actually adapting a picture from isaiah 63 of god sort of trampling the nations that have trampled his holy city and it's an intense image it's it's pretty it's pretty grim if you read it you're like whoa okay this is pretty bloody stuff um but what's important to remember is it's not without justice. It's not, it's not like God's just sort of done this on a whim. God has done and will continue to do everything he can to cause people to want to turn to him for salvation and life, to choose forgiveness and to choose grace through Jesus. 
but he will not force you. He calls to each one of us to come and to be saved, but to those that will not, those that choose separation from God, God will give them over to their desires. It's actually a mac- an act of God's mercy, actually, that he does not force you to be with him. Eventually, he says, okay, I will let you go the way you choose. I'm not going to force you to be with me. In the same way, if a lover tried to force you to be with them, they would cease to be a lover. We actually call that a predator. It's a bit abusive, actually, isn't it? God won't be like that towards us. He will eventually say, fine, I will let you go. And for some reason, the Fleetwood Mac song is coming up in my head. <laughs> you can go your own way, essentially, is where it goes. He won't force you to be with him, but he will enact his holiness and his justice against the seriousness of our sin. We can't ignore that. I like what Billy Graham said about this. Let me read this to you. This is Billy Graham. He said, the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin. Right? Jesus had to die because of the sin in your life. There had to be a a price for that. There was a cost to that. And either you and I could carry the weight of that that payment due by by dying for our sin, or someone else could come in our place and die for us. Billy Graham, he says, The cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. But the story does not end with the cross. For Easter points us beyond the tragedy of the cross to the empty tomb. It tells us that there is hope for eternal life, for Christ has conquered evil and death and hell. Yes, there is hope. And so while this chapter ends on a, on a, frankly, almost a disturbing note, it should shock us out of our maybe spiritual apathy, our stupor about the reality of our sinfulness, um, the, the tragedy of that, that Jesus died for that, and call us into repentance, I think, so that we are not uh, among those who continually choose a life apart from God, but we choose to follow the risen Lamb. Let's summarize this as we wrap this up today. Revelation 14. I like to think of it this way. The first section was about one true king, as opposed to the beasts and the empires and all that nonsense. The last section was about two harvests, and the middle section was about three proclamations. Kind of like the, like the rhythm of that. And those three proclamations, again, really drive home the whole message of the gospel. In fact, the first one was about the eternal gospel, right? God loves all people from every tribe and language who are welcomed to follow Jesus, welcome to repent and believe in him. And I encourage you today to come to him, to repent and believe and to follow him, right? The mark of the Christian. And the second message, again, of those three is so key for us that Babylon will fall. Babylon is fallen. And that means all the evil empires of greed and rebellion and murder will ultimately fall because Jesus is the true king, and he has won the victory. And that third message, again, so key for us. Those who choose to worship the beast 
will know the holy justice of God against their evil and will meet their due end. But they need not if they repent and follow Jesus. All of this, this whole thing, (laughs) this whole bit here, is really meant to encourage us as believers who are struggling in difficulty. When it looks like Rome and Babylon have won all their nonsense, we can look to the slain and risen Lamb, Jesus, who has been established as the King and the victor. And we can rest in the blessed assurance that is found in Him alone, that He will see us through. And the evil we see in societies around us will eventually be judged and brought to bear before the throne of God. In all of this, how does John call us to apply this? He says in verse 12, here's a call for endurance of the saints. We're called to live faithfully and to persevere, looking to that day when we too will join in the song with the many who have gone before us around the throne of Jesus the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this morning, for the message of your gospel, that all who repent and believe are invited to come and to receive eternal life from you. Lord, I thank you that you call us to patience and perseverance and faithfulness in difficult times. I thank you that revelation is so clear that we will go through difficult times because there's an honesty, a realism to that, that flies in the face of all the prosperity, uh, false gospel nonsense that we see purported around us today, especially here in the West, that we'll just be happy and healthy all the days of our lives. And yes, Jesus, you want us to be full of life, and you do call us into new life, but you also call us to live with perseverance and endurance during these difficult seasons. And we know that our ultimate health and wholeness and life may not be found this, this side of, of your return, but will indeed be found in our resurrection. And so, Jesus, I pray today that you would encourage each and every one who is feeling the weight, perhaps, of oppressive uh, empires. I mean, when we think of Canada and the States, we don't often think of this. But, Lord, there's, there's forces around us out there that, that do come against us, that do weigh us down. We see it all in, in society, in the media, in politics. We see it all around us. Lord, would you cause us to endure faithfully for you? Lord, I pray that we would remember our ultimate hope and home is in you. And we look forward to studying that further as we get closer to the end of Revelation. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from putting our faith in the false uh, Babylons that are around us. And we'll talk about that more as we get closer to the end of the book as well. But Lord, keep us from idolatry. Keep us from putting our faith and our hope in someone or something other than you. God, I thank you for your grace over us. I thank you that you love us, you call us to yourself, that there is a, an inclusive invitation for all to come to Jesus. Uh, he invites us all to come. Lord, I thank you that you invited me to come. I thank you that you invite each and every one who hears this message this morning to come and to repent and to believe and to walk with you, to be followers of Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for this morning. I pray that you would go with each one as they head into this week, whatever it may hold. Encourage each one, Lord. Strengthen each one. 
bring comfort and hope, Lord, where we are worn out and anxious and tired. Lord, give us grace for every hurdle. Give us joy, Lord, in this season. Uh, give us patience, Lord, and cause us to see uh, the hope we have to endure for you, even in difficult times, and give us wisdom and boldness, Lord, to share the good news and the faith that we have with those around us. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.